The book of John is organized around seven miracles and seven I am statements. John is a mystic. His gospel is very different from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't really present things at all in the same way. And of course, we see that the book is organized around the number seven, as is the book of Revelation. The book of John is the book that most clearly presents Yeshua as God. What you have is the number four that goes clear back to Exodus. Four is the Messiah number. And in Exodus, what we see is we have four camps around the tabernacle. And the lead tribe in each camp is represented by a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. The standards of the four lead tribes. And of course, we have the four living creatures that surround the throne room of God. You have a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle, faces on cherubim. And you see that in the book of Ezekiel, and you also see it in the book of Revelation. So the four Gospels also mirror that organization. So the book of Matthew presents Yeshua in his Jewishness, presents him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, if you will. The book of Mark presents him as the suffering servant, and that is the ox, the beast of burden, if you will, domestic animal, so forth. Luke, who's a physician, presents him as a man, presents him in his humanity. And of course, John presents him as divine. So John would correspond then to the evil. So as you go through the book of John, your mindset should be somewhat different than when you go through the synoptic gospels. One of the things that people do in the synoptic gospels is they match up events in the different gospels and try and figure out when things happen and that kind of thing. And that's all very appropriate. John is a bit different. He's, he's a mystic. I have no idea where this study is going. I will tell you right up front. There's correlation on some of the signs with the feasts, but not all of them. There are correlations with the I am statements and things that he is talking, for example, to the Pharisees about. So when he gets to the I am the bread of life, there's this long discourse where he's talking to the Pharisees, and then he feeds the 5,000. And at the end of that, then he comes up with, I'm the bread of life. So you see how the stuff that's going on in the story has been leading up to this statement that he makes. As we go through, I will point out what I see. Very much welcome y'all's insights, because as I said, I haven't done this before. I have no idea where it's going. Let me read the lists for you, just so you know where we're going. So the seven signs is changing water into wine, healing the royal official's son at a distance, healing the paralytic in Bethsaida, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, there's some controversy about that list, by the way. There are Bible scholars that say, well, walking on water wasn't really a public sign. And what they want to do then is substitute, for example, the crucifixion and resurrection as the seventh sign. And you could certainly do that. I'm not arguing with you. 
Just the list that I have is the one that I just gave you. And then the seven I am statements is I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Now there's two other I am statements that again don't make this list because they aren't I am something. They are both essentially declarations of his deity. That's in John 8 where he's duking it out with the Pharisees and he says before Abraham was I am. And the other one is where he is at the well at Sychar where he is with the Samaritan woman and she's saying well we're all waiting for the Messiah. And he looks at her and says, I am he. So there are other I am statements, if you will. But the ones that are on my list here is I am something. And of course, all of them refer back to things that are happening in the Torah and the Tanakh. And one of the reasons for going through this study is it's very, very common for new Christians to be handed the book of John. You know, you accepted Yeshua as your Savior. Here's the book of John. And I will suggest, without throwing stones at anybody, without a background in Torah and Tanakh, I think you miss a lot of what's going on in the book of John. And what I'm hoping this will do, no guarantees, as I say, I haven't done this before, so we'll find out. What I'm hoping this will do is we can dig back into the Torah and the Tanakh as we go through each of these statements and we can see what's being said prophetically, see what's being said from the point of view of the promises made by God, and so forth. So what I'm hoping we can do is come at this from the perspective of a Hebrew. What does a Hebrew see with these seven signs and these seven I am statements? With that, let's go. And the first one is the wedding at Cana, and that's in John chapter 2. I will just read it, and then I'll come back and unpack it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Yeshua was there. Yeshua also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Yeshua said to him, They have no wine. And Yeshua said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Yeshua said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled him up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Yeshua did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the first thing is at the end, his disciples believed in him. One of the things that is obviously being accomplished here is he's letting his disciples know 
in some sense who he perhaps is. Now the question becomes, what does this sign tell them about who he is? Symbolism first. You have a wedding, which of course should take you back to Eden, where God created us male and female, and divided us male from female, and then said be fruitful and multiply, which means male and female have to come together. That's not particularly remarkable. Even unbelievers do that. The next thing is wine. There's a thread in the Torah, especially the book of Genesis, where you have bread or grain and wine and they sort of weave in and out. The first instance of bread in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 3. And it's in Genesis chapter 3, after they have eaten of the forbidden tree, that God says, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. So bread is associated with rebellion and the fall, if you will. Fast forward to Joseph's dreams, where you have sheaves of wheat representing grain, and the sheaves bow down to him. Fast forward again to Pharaoh's two stewards. You have a baker who represents grain, and now you have a wine steward. Notice that the grain gets cut off. The wine goes forward. There are those who believe that one of the things that happened in the garden is wine, which causes confusion. Because what's the first thing that Noah does after he lands off of the ark? Happy hour. It takes him a while because he's got to plant a vineyard first. This is sort of a long-range happy hour. But the idea of bread and wine sort of weaving in and out throughout the scriptures is a real thing, if you will. So for Yeshua to be at a wedding party and change water into wine says something, if you go back to the the baker and the wine steward, where the bread stops, and bread represents sin and rebellion, if you will, the wine which represents joy or confusion, it can represent either one, because what does uh, God say to Aaron after the death of his two sons, Nadab and Abihu? No wine or strong drink when you come into my presence. Yet here is Yeshua at a wedding, a time of joy, a time of we're going to start being fruitful and multiplying, which was the first commandment, providing wine. Not only wine, but really good wine. So that's sort of set of symbols number one. The the wine itself is, is symbolic because, as I say, it dips in and out through Scripture as you go forward. At this point in his ministry, and certainly all the way up until he says, I am the bread of life, he has got a cloud of disciples, far more than the 12. It only gets pared down to 12 at the place where he says, you must eat of my flesh. And then everybody goes, ooh, and the number then gets pared down to 12. So at this point, the number of disciples is indeterminate. Certainly he has, at this point, talked to some, you know, went and picked 
some out. Not 12, but it may very well be more than 12 people that are following it. The next thing, of course, are these six stone jars of water. I would suspect that virtually every brand new Christian has no idea what's going on there. Those are water containing ashes of the red heifer. In the Torah, they're instructed to take a red heifer that has never plowed or anything like that. And they are instructed to slaughter the heifer. A clean man is to take it outside the camp. He is to burn it to ash, throwing cedar wood and scarlet uh, wool in with it as he burns it. The ashes are then collected up. And those ashes are the only thing that will purify from contact with a corpse. And the ritual is you send a clean man out, he collects all this stuff, and in that process he then becomes unclean. And I'm using clean and unclean for the Hebrew tahor and tamai, and you've all heard this lecture before. It has nothing to do with either sanitation or sin. He starts off as clean. He processes this animal and in that process becomes unclean. And everybody who picks up and handles the ashes starts off as clean and becomes unclean, but the ashes are then mixed with water. And if you come in contact with a corpse, you take a mikvah and you're sprinkled with this water that has ashes of the heifer in it, and the ashes turn you from unclean to clean. So it is a tahor tamai transmogrifier. If you come into contact when you are tahor, you become tamai. When you come into contact when you're tamai, you become tahor. And what they did is when they ran out of ashes, they would slaughter another heifer and they would mix some of the ashes of the previous heifer with the next heifer and that's how they would continue it. I don't remember off the top of my head how many they say they did before their exile, but it was like not more than 20 during all that time. Certainly not a large number for 1,500 years. What they do then, once they have this ash, is they divide it into three parts. One part is kept in reserve for when they need to burn another heifer. And that ash will be mixed with the next heifer. One third is kept for the priests in purification in the temple. The other third is sent to synagogues all over the country. And it's mixed, it, very, you know, like a pinch in a big jar of water. I mean, it, it's not very much. And the idea then is if your Uncle Sam dies and you have to care for the body, you have become unclean. And so you need to get back and you don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem to do it. So what you do is you go to your local synagogue and there they have some of this water of purification which they can work you through the seven-day process of coming back into Tahar. So that's what this water is. Now, I will put this as graphically as I can so you get the idea. What he is doing here is the cultural equivalent of going into the men's room and scooping water out of the toilet. There is no way that any Jew is going to drink water of purification, and especially not at a wedding, because somebody who is in a state of purity 
coming in contact with it switches the other way. And the last thing you want to do is mess up the bride and groom on their wedding day. So, as I say, I'm trying to put this as strongly and grossly as I can so you get a flavor for just how radical this is. There's more, of course. These are six stone jars. What does the number six represent? Man, doesn't it? So you have six stone jars. What do you suppose the stone jars represent? Hearts of stone, right? So you have the number of a man, stone containers, hearts of stone, and oh, by the way, the stuff that is in those six jars, those hearts of stone, turns things that are pure, impure, and things that are impure, pure. And so what he does then, he fills up these jars and he turns it all into wine, which I am going to suggest represents life, blood, joy, any number of good things. So what he's demonstrating in this miracle, especially since it's at a wedding, and especially since we're sort of referring back to the garden, is he is able to be master over Tahor and Tamayim. He is able to take something that would normally turn everybody who touched it unclean, Tamai, and he is able to change it so that it now becomes a source of great joy at a wedding celebration. So everybody's sort of starting to understand what's going on here. This is a major deal. Now let's talk about Tahor and Tamai. Tahor and Tamai does not mean clean and unclean, and it's really unfortunate that your Bibles translate it that way, because clean and unclean to us has sanitary connotations. This is not talking about sanitation. What it's talking about is life and death. Tamai comes from the word atum, which means closed off. So in Israel, for example, all new construction has to have a closed off room for gas attacks. A tomb closed off. Something that is closed off from the light of God is in the realm of death. Something that is open to the light of God is in the realm of life. As you go through your life, you transition between the realm of life and the realm of death all the time. There's no connotation of sin here. Using our example of Uncle Samuel died, it is a commandment that you take care of his body. There's no sin involved there. But in that process, you have entered the realm of death. And so what you need to do once you've finished taking care of his body is you need to then have a procedure to come back into the realm of life. A healthy woman, once a month, transitions from life to death as the ability to pass on life leaves her body. And there's a procedure where she comes back. No sin involved. And again, it's really unfortunate that it's been called clean and unclean because that has all sorts of nasty cultural connotations to it. So what Yeshua is doing here is he is saying, I am life. I can take this symbol of death, which is this water that is used to move people from the realm of death into the realm of life, and I can turn this into the substance of joy. 
the pseudo will be served at a wedding feast. I am life. I am the source of life. And later on, he will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what he's doing is he's making a really powerful statement here about who he is and what his authority is. Because as I say, no Jewish man would ever think of taking water out of those jars and serving it to anybody. The last thing here, so verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So the idea here is servants of God know what God is doing, even if the people around them may not. A couple of things. One is I suspect very strongly that he put on his half glasses and looked at him over the top of his half glasses and said, you don't speak about this to anybody. And they probably didn't, simply because it would be like somebody bringing a tray of sandwiches in that had turkey ham and nobody was sure whether it was turkey ham or not. So the servant came in and said, yeah, you should have seen this guy, man. He had us fill up the jars and shazam, it became wine and here you go. I don't think so. So it's important that the servants do not say what's going on. The other part of that that's important is that the servants of God are in on what God is doing. And so if you want to be in on what God is doing, become a servant of God. All right, that's all I know about the wedding at Cana. The next thing is we go through the woman in Samaria, Sychar, and she's at Joseph's well. And I want to take just a second there, and he talks about living water and so forth. As I say, he's going to do living water later on, and he'll do it at the water pouring at the Feast of Sukkot is when he actually does that. So we'll tie that to Sukkot when we get there. But the place I want to just pause for a minute is I'm in chapter 4, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. As I say, that isn't one of the I am the bread of life, I am the way, you know, it's not one of those I am's, but it is an I am. And it's sort of his first acknowledgement of who he really is. And in the Luke reading that we did this past week on Shabbat, he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, and he stands up and he reads the passage from Isaiah. And he says, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing today. And everybody says to him, wow, this is Joe the carpenter's son. Wow, isn't he well spoken? Wow, didn't he get a good education? Wow, were we proud of him. And then he says to them, doubtless you're going to say to me, physician, heal thyself because you have heard what I've done in other places. And he says, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And then he goes into this riff, and he says, During the time of Elijah, were there not many widows in Israel? Yet Elijah only went to the widow at Sidon, where he raised her son from the dead. And similarly, during the time of Elisha, weren't there many lepers in Israel? And the only one that Elisha healed was Naaman the Syrian. 
So what he's saying is these two heavy hitter prophets, Elijah and Elisha, had their choice of widows and lepers that they could have operated on during their ministry. They didn't choose to do so. They instead went to a Lebanese woman and a Syrian general to heal those two things, at which point his family and friends in Nazareth got righteously cranked at him and took him out to throw him down over the bluff. Having said that, that particular vignette does not show up in the book of John. But who does Yeshua announce that he is the Messiah to? A Samaritan woman, not a Jew. And the significance of that is, historically, when the northern kingdom was taken into exile by the Assyrians, their policy was, in order to keep conquered populations subservient, they separated them from their land. So they came in and they conquered the northern kingdom and they picked everybody up and moved them off. And they replaced them with other conquered people. So the Samaritans are not ethnically Hebrews. They came and they were planted there by the Assyrians. And in typical biblical time fashion said, okay, we've just moved into this place. Who are the local gods and what do we do with them? And so they were told the local god here is Jehovah. Here's his book. And this is how you worship him. And so the Samaritans took on all of the trappings of Judaism. They have their own copies of the Torah. They did their own sacrifices. They did all that Jewish stuff, if you will. But the Jews never accepted them as Hebrews. So I find it really interesting that in the book of Luke, he gets himself in trouble in his hometown by saying, these heavy hitter prophets didn't come to the people of Israel. They went to a Lebanese woman in Assyria. And then in the book of John, he turns around and doesn't announce himself as the Messiah to the Hebrews. What he does is he announces himself to a Samaritan woman. He is operating in the role of an Old Testament prophet. And when an Old Testament prophet comes through your town, it's not for God to tell you what good job you're doing. So when God finally gets to the point where he sends you a prophet, you're in trouble. So he's going through Israel as a prophet in the Old Testament sense, like Malachi or Jeremiah or any of those guys. And what happens is if the people don't repent, the next thing that happens is exile. And of course, they don't repent, and the next thing that does happen to them is exile. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.